Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can take the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks, as in Sparks Are Flying, dot com. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So tonight I'm happy to have as my guest Tamara Pincus. Tamara is a licensed clinical social worker and a certified sex therapist who runs a small group private practice in the Washington, D.C. area. She specializes in working with kinky, poly, and LGBTQ clients. She's a published author who has um, co-authored a book called It's Called Polyamory, Coming Out About Your Non-Monogamous Relationships. She lives in a big poly household with her husband, her husband's partner, four children, two of whom are hers, two platonic poly family members, two cats, two dogs, and a boa constrictor. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Tamara. Hi. Um, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be, to be here. Also, it's Tamara. Tamara, I keep asking you the pronunciation. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tamara. Tamara, okay. got it. <laughs> it happens. Okay. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, yeah, I'm really anxious to uh, learn more about your book and all that. But let's start with um, your personal story. I'd like to hear... You know, I was curious how anyone becomes a sex therapist, and how did you end up in a big poly household? So how did you first know you were poly, and how did you end up becoming a sex therapist? Okay, one question at a time. I'm going to answer the sex therapist one first. So um, okay. after after college, I spent a couple years doing administrative support, and I worked on an abortion referral hotline, and I sort of was sort of bouncing around, and as the child of highly educated overachievers, um, they sent me to a career counselor. And the career counselor's like, what do you like to do? And I'm like, talk about sex. So she was like, okay, <laughs> find a sex therapist and ask them how they got to where they are. And that's what I did. And so I guess I started that process back in 2002. Um, so I've been sort of on that path for a really long time. Um, and, it, you know, it makes sense. I was doing a lot of sort of at my college and so like the sexuality stuff has sort of also always been a big part of my personality um as far as the polyamory I you know we had you know I was exploring in the kink worlds and it just made sense to be able to like actually do things with other people um and I didn't want to feel restricted about having feelings so that's sort of how we ended up there um the big crazy poly house thing took a while. Um, my husband had had been dating his girlfriend for four years, and she was over every weekend for four years <laughs> before we decided, mm. okay, we should do it in. So that's how we got there. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so two of the children are her, her birth children? Yes. And so what's that like to have 
um, this kind of Brady Bunch mixed family with all the different kids. It works pretty well. One of the kids is like 22 and in college, so she's she's more grown up than the rest of us <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. And um, I mean, and and the other kids, they definitely feel like siblings. Um, I mean, it's sort of interesting that they sort of came upon each other later, but they also had a lot of time to bond before we moved in together. Mm-hmm. And so was polyamory always just kind of like your orientation or did you struggle with it at one point? Was it hard for you when your husband started becoming so partnered with this other woman or was that an easeful happening for you? So so many questions. Okay. Um, (laughs) Take any one of them. (laughs) Okay. So, so as far as my own poly identity, I um, started attempting to do polyamory in college um, my college boyfriend was like, you're bisexual, and I, you'll never stay with me if you, I never let you date women, so you should date women. So we tried that. It was mm. a disaster. Mm. <laughs> it was like in the 90s. There were no resources. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what the hell we were mm-hmm. doing. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like, as far as my husband being really partnered with his girlfriend, we just – we had a lot of luck, actually, because – he and I both fell really hard for other people at almost exactly the same time. Mm. So, so we were both sort of going through that like sense of like this relationship is shifting and how we feel about the world is shifting. And like, it was all, it all happened like really at once. So we started like sort of identifying as poly say probably in February of 2011 and by by December, we were both pretty involved with these two other partners, and we're both still with those partners. So mm-hmm. um, my partner doesn't live with us, but mm-hmm. he's one of my my deep connected person, I would say, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of helpful when you both have other partners at the same time, because sometimes in a primary partnership, it's not always even like that where one person may be having a boom time and the other's having a lean time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's definitely what I see like with clients who come into my practice and are dealing with this. We just mm-hmm. had really good luck with it. Mm-hmm. So, what do you, what do you tell your clients of, when they're having that unbalanced experience? Um, so I think I try to work on helping them identify what the feelings, where the feelings are from coming from, helping them identify like emotional care plans. So like when there are things that are dysregulating them, like what can their partner do to help sort of soothe them and calm them down? Um, Mm -hmm. I try to like encourage people who are just starting out to start out slow, but also I don't necessarily subscribe to the like go at the pace of the slowest person because I feel like sometimes people can use their their feelings to like control the situation in a way that can become Mm -hmm. toxic over time. So you Mm -hmm. have to sort of figure out how to balance working through those really tough feelings and like allowing a certain level of freedom. So, yeah. Right. It's interesting that you said that. That's hard. Don't do it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, You know, it's interesting. You said going at the rate of the slowest person, um, I have this analogy that I use with my clients um, where I 
I say that it's kind of like, let's say that you lost a friend. Um, I mean, let's say that your friend lost their house in like a big fire or some natural disaster. And you're like, yeah, come and stay with me, you know, stay on my couch. And you would totally give them plenty of time, like maybe a couple of weeks even to like recover from the trauma of it. Right. And mm-hmm. then you'd want them to start thinking about like, what, what are they going to do with their life? Where are they going to live? You know, do they need to find another job? And, and you, you know, you'd want them to be starting to make progress toward looking for a job or looking for a place to live. But if they weren't making any progress and they were just laying on your couch scrolling social media all day, <laughs> you'd kind of go, okay, I need you to get off my couch now. And so it's probably a really, really lame analogy, but it's the closest thing I can come to when I talk about if there's one person that's slower than the other, if you think of them as like the couch surfer, like, you know, give them some time to like get used to the situation and then notice that they're actually doing some education and they're going to therapy and they're making progress. If they're not making progress and they're just sitting there going, I don't like this, with their arms folded, then no, you're not going to slow down for them. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think if they're saying, I don't like this, then I think you have to go back to the, like, are they really okay with being in an open relationship? And if they're not, what are we going to do? Right. Um, That's a bigger question there. Yeah. Yeah. And like, why would they agree to this if they weren't really okay with it? And Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I had one client that um, the one person, the person who you would say was the slowest, um, she just didn't think that it was going to look like it looked. She thought it was going to be like her husband would have this lover that he would see for two hours in the afternoons once a week or something and come home. And the next thing you know, he's in a full on relationship with this other person. And so she's over here having PTSD and freaking out. And they were trying to figure out, like, do they really want the same things? And they ultimately said no. Um, but they tr- she tried really, really hard, and they were very, very patient with her until she just realized it was too much for her nervous system. She couldn't handle it, and, and she just let him go. So, yeah, a lot of times you just have to see, like, where is your compatibility? How do you want to do open relationship? Do you want the same things? It's a real question. Yeah. And it can be really painful. I, I hate to admit it, but sometimes I actually help people break up because they, they've been trying so hard and knocking their head against the wall. Do you find that to be true, that you kind of have to facilitate people admitting that they're just not a match? Um, yeah, I definitely do that sometimes. sometimes. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say I do that more with the poly clients than I do with the other clients. That's <laughs> like, true. Yeah. A lot of people come into couples therapy because they need to break up and they don't know how to do it. Like that's exactly a lot of yeah. Well, my true. clients are only I only see polyamorous open relationship people, so I don't have the other to compare it to. <laughs> um. So so how long have you been with your husband? Um. Let's see. We got married in two thousand two, so seventeen years. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. That's great. And how did you end up having a boa constrictor? <laughs> um, 
So this is actually my second boa constrictor. My mm. first boa constrictor I got right after college. And I had always been somebody who was really actually terrified of snakes. And I would have mm. nightmares about the snakes all the time. And I would sometimes be scared to go outside in the wilderness if there were, because I'd be like terrified there'd be a snake. And so we were staying in a friend's house um, and she had this snake and it was like the size of a magic marker. And I held the mm. snake and I totally fell in love with it. Um, and she was like, I will sell you the snake. You can bring it home with you. And I was like, okay. And um, I was like 21. And, and she was like, it's a king snake. And I was like, okay. So I get back to Virginia and it's a boa constrictor. So I have this snake that grows from the size of a magic marker to like six or seven feet. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, oh crap. It's really hard <laughs> to find an apartment with a seven foot boa constrictor. I'm just saying. So. <laughs> So I, so I donated her to the reptile rescue. Um, she ended up at a at a breeder in New York who was actually a priest, which I find to be hysterical. And um, and then, I guess, so that was like probably 1999. And I guess about two or three years ago, you know, we had moved into a new house, and the kids were old enough that the snake couldn't eat them. And um, <laughs> so I went back to the reptile rescue. And I adopted a snake that was about the same size as my other snake had been when I gave her away. And now mm-hmm. I have a big bow constrictor that lives in my bedroom and has not yet eaten the what's cat. It, what's its name? Her name is Jasmine. My son named her. Jasmine. <laughs> bow constrictor named Jasmine. That's great. <laughs> well, you are my funny. First time okay. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So um, you talk about ethics in sex therapy and that's a big topic mm-hmm. these days um, I know there's a lot of communities and Tantra and uh, various sexual healing communities where um, the leaders have been accused of you know having sex with their clients and um, some of them are unapologetic about that they feel like it's okay to have sex with their clients so um, tell us a little bit about what you speak about with, on that topic. So, um, I mean, I've mostly, like, like done talks that are more like discussions for people to talk about what the ethical situations that they have come across have been. Um, one of mm-hmm. the things is that the Social Work Ethics Board and really all of the Counseling Professions Ethics Boards don't really have a lot of representation of like people who are sex therapists or who are sex positive at all on them. So Mm. there are ideas that like therapists shouldn't date and therapists should never go to sex parties and therapists should, you know, sort of really like put their sexuality in a box, which doesn't really Mm -hmm. align well with like current, like the current way that things work in the world. Like, most right. people, if they date, date online, and telling therapists that they can't date online is, is insane. So, mm-hmm. um, so actually, a lot of the talks I've done have been um, sort of co-led with Michael Giordano, who's still doing talks on this stuff. Um, I actually went to one of his classes recently because I needed ethics credits for um, for my social work licensing, and it was like the same conversation we always have: like, how do you manage dating? How do you manage the the small community issues, what happens if you meet. So if you're polyamorous and the community is small, which the community is always small, there's like these, you know, the degree of distance between you and your clients 
like the degrees mm-hmm. of separation is very small. Right. So like, right. Um, so I've definitely had situations where like I've had partners who have like, I've realized later have had sex with former clients or, mm. you know, and, and it's, it's really dodgy. Um, Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you find out that somebody is like a partner of a client, like I think you need to either end your relationship with that person or end your end your relationship with the client and refer them out. Um, I mean, I like obviously because people in my field are it, it's important to keep our licenses. We're not going to have sex with clients and we're going to avoid situations that could be dangerous. But I do think that there are some people in the field who are comfortable enough to still go to places where public sex happens and do the things that they want to do. Um, for me, I will mostly, if I'm going to go to a sex party or something, I'll either go out of town or I'll go somewhere where I um, have access to the guest list so I can make sure that none of my clients are on it. Um, and in my informed consent form, I have like a, if you see me on a dating site, swipe left, click hide, <laughs> you know, so that, so that clients know that like I might be out there and that they shouldn't mess with me. Um, but I'm not going to pretend that right. like that's a thing that I don't do. Um, Cause I feel like it's, yeah. I mean, I feel like there, there's an idea in therapy that we should be a blank slate, but really mm-hmm. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right, yeah. right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you've been privy to, maybe it's a California thing, but I've just been hearing about, um, like, a, a big Tantra community where some of the teachers were being sexual with their clients and and then um, another community that has workshops all over the world um, believed that it was okay for their teachers to be sexual with their client. Do you have a – I mean, this is not people that are licensed like you are. This is just – people who claim to be Tantra teachers and sexual healers. And like, what is your opinion about that whole concept of like, should teachers never have sex with their client? Are there any circumstances where that actually could be a healing circumstance? So for me, it's really dodgy with the Tantra stuff. And I'll tell you why. Um, Mm -hmm. So for me, like as a person who's done enough Tantra stuff that like, I can breathe to orgasm. I can have an orgasm from looking somebody in the eye. Like I, like mm-hmm. things that people don't think of as sexual interaction are sexual interaction mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, so would I say I've had sex with some of my Tantra teachers? Like it, by some definition, certainly. Um, right. And I, I feel like you are, when you're doing Tantra, you're moving into that realm of being sexual with a person. And I think that you have to sort of acknowledge the power dynamics involved and Mm -hmm. um, what consent means in those kind of situations. Like a lot Mm -hmm. of the Tantra workshops that I've been to, people are very careful about like, are we making sure that everybody is really okay with doing the things that they're doing and let's check in at every step of the way. Um, But Mm -hmm. I've certainly been to communities where that's not the case and that people aren't necessarily thinking through like what the ramifications of what they're doing are. Um, so mm-hmm. I feel like it really is important for Tantra teachers to, to get more training on ethics, to understand mm-hmm. what, what it's like to like, if you have a student who you've been doing guided meditations with for two hours and they've had 16 orgasms and they're out in their mind, if you ask <laughs> them if they want to have sex, 
they're not in a position to make an informed decision because they're high in the same way that you wouldn't fuck somebody who's drunk. And in the same way that you wouldn't fuck your student in another situation, like you, like, Mm -hmm. I think you have to like really have them understand like what they're doing and why they're doing it. If they, if they go Mm -hmm. in that direction. Right, right, right. Thank you. Yeah, and that's a good segue to the concept of consent culture, which is another topic that you speak about. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, a big a big word, and I've done entire episodes on my radio show about consent, but we can touch on it a little bit here. <laughs> um, yeah. So one thing you one thing you said was, you know, you can't give your consent when you're when you're high. So there was a person in a community that I'm in who made an agreement to um, be sensual with with a woman and not do anything penetrative but then once Mm -hmm. she was turned on she asked him to penetrate her and then she and he did and then she chewed him out later and he got in trouble and kicked out of the community (laughs) so that's Mm -hmm. one of those situations where you know, we really have to learn that you can't give consent when you're super turned on because there's like chemicals and hormones and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not you're not in your like in a good place to make those decisions. But I also think it's really hard when you're really turned on and somebody is like, "Fuck me, fuck me," to be like, you know, I think you're really not in a good position to make that decision exactly. right now. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> Like so, yeah, so I, I get it, and I think that. Him a break. <laughs> well, I feel like like those kinds of situations really benefit from restorative justice processes, where people like actually talk mm-hmm. about, you know, how did this happen, and how can we make sure it doesn't happen again, and how can we prevent mm-hmm. these kinds of things from happening in our community. And I feel like we've done a spectacularly poor job of doing that. <laughs> and right. I feel like. People are still trying. I know people are trying with the Franklin Vaux situation to, like, mm-hmm. you know, have the survivors get the support that they need and have him have the support he needs to make changes. And mm-hmm. I know some people are really skeptical of what he's saying. Um, and it's really complicated to figure out, like, how to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also really tempting to demonize people who violated consent even though mm-hmm. most of us have violated consent in some ways like most of us mm-hmm. have hugged somebody without asking you know mm-hmm. but so I think we really need to think about like how do we teach people how to do consent better and how do we like not just write off everybody who's ever violated consent because a lot of us mm-hmm. have, done it, have done it I I know one day um, this is probably a story I shouldn't share but I'm going to share it I was um, at a play party with Reed Mahalko, and I was, like, really in a very intensely sexual space, and he came up, and he hugged me, and I bit him. Like, I didn't mm. – <laughs> I did not have consent at all. There was no way in which I should have done that, and I bit him. <laughs> and, you know, do I think that, like, I should be ostracized from, like – all of the sex positive communities because I did that? No. Did I apologize to him mm-hmm. for that and try to figure out how to avoid it in the future? Yes. <laughs> right? So. Right. I think it's been so hard for us to talk about that um, 
and it was so hard for us to admit that like a lot of us, if not all of us, could have done this or have done this on some level. But it's right. easier to think of people who violate consent as monsters. And then when we do that, when somebody violence, violates consent and we know them or, and we don't think they're a monster, we're like, that couldn't have happened. Um, so it ends yeah. up causing us to not believe survivors, which is craziness. Right. Yeah. A couple things came up for me. One is I was learning about this way that we can normalize um, being as sex educators, um, we may inadvertently harm people from time to time. And to norm, so we can normalize it if we all, as many of us as possible, create like a page on our website or some way where people can report that we harm them to someone else. So they don't have to go directly to us, but we all have some other person they can report to. And if we all kind of do that, then it's normalized. So that when that one time is really big, it's not like this big drama. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, we've all done that from time to time. Some are worse than others, yes, of course, but that we're not all perfect. So I really liked that, and I'm in the process of doing that on my website right now. I found, like, a pod, you know, one person that that the person can report to if they felt harmed by me, um, another person that coaches me on my blind spot, and then a third person who um, watches for burnout in case there's a big case that the other two are having to deal with. So I thought that was a really great um, plan. It does sound like a great system. I feel like it might be complicated for people with licenses. Like I do have in my informed consent, like if you have a problem with me, like report me to the licensing board, here's how to contact them. But, um, but I feel like because there's, like a formal process for doing that, it might be really complicated for me to set up like a separate parallel process. Um, oh, you're right. Yeah, for like people, it'd be different. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd be curious to see like if other therapists have anything like that and what that would look like. But I think mm-hmm. it would be. I think it's dodgy because of the yeah, licensure thing. Is a little, yeah, it's probably a bit more for coaches and authors and speakers that aren't licensed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then the other thing was about consent. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, hmm. Oh, well, <laughs> it'll come back. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know what it was. So I was on a date recently, and it was a first date, and this man, like, leaned over and tried to kiss me, and I said, no, I don't want to kiss you. I don't want to kiss you at this time. And he said, and then we talked about it later, and he said, oh, that's just uh, um, uh, an invitation to try harder or something. And I was like, I don't want to kiss you. That's not clear. (laughs) No, that's an invitation for you to not have a second date. Yes. (laughs) There definitely was no second date, trust me. But it was just interesting because we got into the whole thing about, like, use your words. Like, why didn't you ask me? First. And he said, oh, well, a lot of women don't want me to ask first. And so it's, I think a lot of times straight men get really confused because they are hearing that sometimes that, oh, don't ask me, you know, that's a mood killer. <laughs> well, and I feel like, I like if you don't want to be asked, you negotiate to not be asked. I, I actually, right. um, I, but I, I, I love asking. So, um, I'm really going to overshare again. So you probably, I think you've had 
Zach Budd do speaking for you? He does consent yeah, work. Uh-huh. He's in Houston. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, so I met him in Dallas um, at Poly Millennium Dallas, and mm-hmm. I thought he was amazingly hot. And I, I went up to him, and I was like, can I kiss you? And for him, that was, like, the hottest thing that had ever happened, like, <laughs> because <laughs> – consent and also like um I think because like it's not it's unusual for women to sort of make that move but I think that we need to be doing that more and also like Mm -hmm. not just like waiting for straight men to figure their shit out but like showing them what we want and being really direct right I think that we that we can learn to use our words in a really seductive way. It doesn't have to be like, "May I kiss you, please?" You know, it can, it can be yeah. like, you know, "Oh, your lips look really juicy, and I really feel like kissing you. Would you like that?" You know, it can be done in a way that's very tantalizing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host. Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at SumatiSparks.com. And we're speaking with Tamara. Did I say Tamara? <laughs> Tamara. Nope. Tamara. I've got a mental block. I've got a mental block about your name. Tamara Pincus. Tamara Pincus. She's a licensed oh, social sure. worker, sex, sex therapist, and author. And we're talking about all kinds of things around polyamory and sex therapy and consent. And you also speak about BDSM. So maybe you can um, Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the intersection of polyamory and BDSM. What have you noticed are some things in common? Well, I mean, I think the the consent culture piece is an overlap. Um, I think just a lot of poly people are open to exploring. And once you're open to exploring, you try all kinds of things. So I think there's a huge amount of overlap. Um, I mean, I don't, usually end up talking about both at the same time. Like I've done some Mm -hmm. presentations about BDSM for like mental health providers and for, um, for like the health clinic at the university of Maryland, just sort of like, you know, with just basic information about what BDSM is and how important it is to be non-judgmental if people reveal that. And like, um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like when I think about the intersections of of those things, there's not a lot out there that I find really helpful on it, except for Raven Caldera's book. Um, he wrote this book called Power Circuits, which is like the only mm-hmm. really good book I found out there about um, doing open relationships while also in power dynamics. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's certainly something that's part of my polyamory as well that I tend to talk about less is the ways mm-hmm. that like some of my relationships also have power dynamics to them um, that I don't mm-hmm. necessarily talk about publicly a lot because mm-hmm. I feel like BDSM is more stigmatized than polyamory in a lot of ways and it's just mm-hmm. not something that people talk about publicly in the same way right right, right. Um, so you have a pamphlet called why do social workers need to know about polyamory so tell us why (laughs) so I wrote that article in a newsletter in 2011 
So let me try to remember what I said. <laughs> I mean, I think in 2011, nobody had heard of polyamory. Like people would mm-hmm. come in to a therapist's office and say that, and people would be like, what are you talking about? And I think, well, and I'd like to pretend that that's a thing that's over. And yet um, I have tried to see a new therapist and have them ask me to both define and spell polyamory. Um, <laughs> so I feel like, it's important for people to know about it just so clients feel seen. And it's important mm-hmm. for therapists to not be judgmental about it because, I mean, I think you ruin a therapeutic alliance if somebody comes in and says, I'm polyamorous, and you say to them, well, clearly you have an attachment problem, um, which is mm-hmm. another thing therapists often say to people who are poly. Right. Yeah, I was just at the um, Solo Poly Conference in San Francisco. Excuse me. And um, somebody was giving a presentation on attachment theory and they handed out, um, they gave us these handouts that were quotes from the books that are supposedly like the leading thought by the most well-respected therapists about attachment theory. And they intentionally gave Uh us these handouts so that we could all have a good laugh because it was so based in mononormative thinking. And it was all about like, you know, stay with your partner all the time at a party, you never leave them. And it was all about like kind of babysitting each other and like being almost like a parent to someone. And so we kind of like rewrote how to, how to heal from anxious and avoidant attachment styles while also being polyamorous. And it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. We kind of crowdsourced how to do it instead of just defaulting to the mainstream monotherapist. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there are some, like Sue Johnson, who, like, is so well-respected in the therapy community. Like, after seeing her speak and just, like, all the sex negativity and mononormativity, like, I I can't bring myself to read her book. And and I hear Mm -hmm. it's a really great book, but, like, I can't Mm -hmm. view it. (laughs) I actually have, um, have a couple other therapists I've been talking with about writing a book about um, doing therapy with um, people in polyamorous relationships, not necessarily couples. Cause that's another thing. Like all of the therapy, all of the relationship therapy models out there are like, you know, four couples and they don't really know what to do when three people are in the room. Um, so, but finding the time and energy to write something like that has yet to happen. But we're thinking about it. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, it's a lot of it is just about communication, communication, and more communication. <laughs> that is certainly true. Speaking, speaking how they're really feeling, being able to hold the space for each other without feeling like you need to fix them, um, but just uh, honoring how they feel and, and then trying to find, um, you know, ways to support each other that aren't overly caretaking. Yeah, and I do think there's a certain level of um, just emotional regulation skills that are really important in relationships because I think sometimes when people get angry, they're just not able necessarily to even control, like, what's coming out of their mouth. So, mm-hmm. like, just some of the basic skills of, like, take a deep breath and count to ten and, like, don't speak from your anger because it's going to be toxic to your relationship. Um, Like those things make a huge difference as well. 
Yeah, the timeout is such a big one in relationships. Yeah. And, and, and knowing then, that we can, I like to play with the term tribal amory because I think it's so helpful to not have to expect my partner to help me get through all of my struggles, to, to have a community I can go to, um, to soothe myself with my other relationships and come back to my partner um, feeling more resourced. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you are are writing the book, or is it done, the book about coming out? It's done. It's out. You can buy it on Amazon. Oh, yay. Okay. Tell us more about that and how you came to choose that as a topic for your book. Um, I mean, I just realized that there weren't many resources out there for it, and I had a lot of clients coming in with, like, how do I come out to my family, and, like, how do I talk to my partner about this, and um, so it seemed like a good idea to write a book on it and then I didn't really want to write a book so I recruited a co-author <laughs> mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we sort of made an made an outline and I did some of the writing but she really did a lot of it mm-hmm. so. and why is it titled it's called polyamory oh because you're defining it to to people who aren't aware of it uh no because my publisher it was supposed to be called coming out poly but then there was a whole like um, Poly- Polynesian people feeling offended by the yeah. word poly. I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> um, and they felt like coming out poly wasn't a good title, so they changed it. I, I still feel like it would have been a better title. But <laughs> having a publisher right. is also nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. So can you share with us one or two of your insights about how to come out? I mean, I think um, doing it slowly, again, with the emotional regulation stuff, taking deep breaths, Mm -hmm. taking a break if you need it. If you think somebody's going to have a really crazy reaction, doing it in writing and giving them time to freak out with you not in the room. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. Yeah, because I think a lot of people just freak out pretty badly. Um, sort of expecting that sometimes people are going to take, like giving people like a year. Well, Stan Savage gives this number of like a year for like people to sort of fin- finish their freak out and then sort of get back back to like a reasonable place around it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's been helpful. I think um, I'm trying to remember what we said about coming out to kids. I think it's important to be open and honest with your kids about what's going on if at all possible because they know even if you don't tell them. So if you're not open with them about it, they can often end up feeling really betrayed later because they don't think you're yeah. having an affair. Um, or right. I had you, a client that was really worried about her. Uh, she was in a relationship with a couple and she mm-hmm. really didn't like that the couple didn't, wasn't telling their kids about her because she felt like they were, um, teaching their kids to not trust their intuition and their judgment by telling the kids, Oh no, no, nothing's going on. You know, it it kind of trains them to not trust what they can obviously feel, you know? (laughs) Right. And the kids always know, like if you don't give them words for it, they'll make up their own words for it. Like Mm -hmm. um, my friend, like her kids just started like 
referring to her partners as like her special friends because he just knew that like some of the friends are the really cuddly friends and like that's a different <laughs> thing. <laughs> that's great. But we've been so, yeah, remember, pretty open with our kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it would be so hard for them to miss what's going on since we live together. But Right, right. But when you first opened your, were you monogamous for a while with your husband and then opened it? Or did you start out open? Um, so we were monogamous, I guess, from 2002 to 2011, so nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And my kids were born in 2006 and 2008. So they were mm-hmm. pretty young when... Um, when we started seeing other people and we didn't necessarily like sit them down and be like, we are polyamorous. We just sort of like, it just became apparent and we wouldn't hide stuff from them. Um, and you know, they know, like they realize that some mm-hmm. friends are special. And so we just start working, referring to those friends as our partners. I remember at some point, um, like we had talked about polyamory a lot, but not necessarily like spent a lot of time defining it for the kids. And my son got a new stuffed animal and he was like, I'm going to name it Polly. <laughs> we just were like, right. <laughs> of course your new stuffed animal is going to be named Polly. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's so yeah. great. So yeah, I remember I told my mom, I was reading that book, Radical Honesty. Um, Mm -hmm. like maybe 20 years ago and I told my mother um, that I was polyamorous (laughs) she was just so upset and I felt really bad I felt like why did I tell her that was it for me or for her like I wasn't didn't have any immediate plans to bring a different partner home or to her house or anything like that so it felt almost like I was just trying to do what the book said instead of like really think about is this the right time can like I do find that sometimes if you have older parents like it's better just to not burden them with that because it makes their brain explode (laughs) yeah I mean I think I I really have a trouble with radical honesty as a theory because I feel like it's not always kind and I think we have to think about how to be kind to the people in our lives I mean, mm-hmm. I'm out to my parents, but I also have people who I consider family who it would be hard for, it would be hard for me if my parents didn't know who those people were. Um, mm-hmm. But I think if you don't have people in your life that like are left out by not being included, because I also think it's really hard to be an unacknowledged partner. Um, my partner that I've been with for seven years um he didn't come out to his parents for, to his mom for a long time. And when he Mm -hmm. did come out to her, she was just horrified. And um, we actually met, we went to his graduation. He got a PhD and um, she refused to talk to me. Like I went up to Mm. try to talk to her and she was just like, no, Mm. Um, which is really terrible. But I feel like, yeah. It was also really hard, like, being an unacknowledged partner and, like, him going home for holidays and, like, not being, not feeling like he could talk to me unless he was, like, outside the house and, like, um, just feeling like I was hidden. And mm-hmm. um, and I still have to be hidden for work because um, his work 
is that a Catholic institution that could fire him? Um, mm. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's it's hard tough. To, to be invisible. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, now I'm glad I told my mother because then I became an open relationship coach and she's my Facebook friend, so she she would have seen it anyway. <laughs> but at the time it just felt like did I really need to tell her then? And I just felt like the book kind of guided me to do it when I really didn't think it was the right idea at that moment (laughs) but then she ended up telling my niece my niece asked her when she was maybe a teenager she asked my mother like what does that mean and (laughs) she ended up telling my niece about it so that was cute (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it all worked out in the end (laughs) so what else um what else about your book? What did you learn in writing it? Anything new that you surprised uh, you? I mean, I don't think I got a lot that was really new and surprising because mm-hmm. I'd been working with like people in the process of coming out for quite a few years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it was nice to sort of like hear people's stories. Like we collected other people's stories of coming out. And um, so we have representation of not just like, privileged white people also like actually have some stories right. from people of color and people are right. have had less advantages because I do think like taking on another stigmatized identity when you already have a bunch of stigmatized identity is, is a different thing than like taking on a stigmatized identity as a person who has a lot of privilege right that's true yeah yep. Exactly. Cool. Well, I'm glad you did that. That's great. Okay. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to share about anything at all about your work, about polyamory, about consent or ethics? Uh What you tell your clients who come to you? Okay. Um, I think I tell my clients different things depending on their situation. Like I get a mm-hmm. a lot of variety in people who come to see me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't get so many of the sort of run-of-the-mill sex therapy cases, but I get some. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. yeah, it sounds like uh, since you put out there that you specialize with kinky poly and LGBTQ clients that you're really getting to work with some edgy issues, some non-traditional issues there. <laughs> yeah, I get I get the interesting ones. I also get a lot of people who've had who've had affairs who don't want to go to therapists who are going to stigmatize them a lot. Um, right, like they think they have right. this idea that like that I won't judge them as much, which I try not to judge them. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think mm-hmm. monogamy is really hard, and I think it's not how hard it is is not generally acknowledged, which is a problem. Right. Yeah, it's so common for people that aren't aware to blame polyamory for some problem that you're having in your relationship, but people rarely blame monogamy. They don't, you know, they don't blame the relationship yeah. structure when it's monogamy. Yeah. So I think we have to be careful when we seek support from people to talk to people who understand alternative relationship styles so they don't just start attacking yeah. the structure. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, a lot of people who have that situation 
I think a lot of them have the sense to sort of leave those therapeutic relationships where they're not feeling accepted. Um, but I think mm-hmm. it's sad that people have to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like that was something that was really important to me early on in sort of my practice was to like create a space, a space particularly for kinky and poly people, because there's lots of LGBTQ friendly therapists and lots of lists for them. But like, the kink and poly stuff is, has been generally much harder to find for people. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And, and I also think bisexuality is an issue that, like, like a, there are a lot of therapists who say they're LGBTQ friendly, but, like, haven't actually, wor- like, don't necessarily even acknowledge bisexuality as a thing or think of it as a phase. Like, so mm-hmm. that's an issue, too, that I see. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's a, a common scenario for people to choose polyamory because one or more of the partners is bisexual. And you said that that's kind of how you first started to be polyamorous. Yeah, when I tried it in college, certainly. And also, right. like, when I when we opened our relationship, the first pe- the first other people that I played with were were women. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And I also just want to thank you for the work that you do and the people that you help and just spreading the love out there. <laughs> really appreciate you being hey. on the show. You want to tell our listeners how they can reach you and um, anything that you want to offer them. Go ahead. So my website is tamarapinkus.com. And if you're looking for a therapist or you feel like reading a random blog, um, it's all up there. Um, and if you, yeah, I mean, and I'm not always like available for new people, but I also have other therapists who work in my practice. And since our main thing is providing therapy for kink and poly people, like they all also get it. Um, mm-hmm. And my book is available on Amazon. So feel free to get it there. And I think that's it. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for being on the show, and I wish you all the best. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, talk to you soon.